Could you use some joy? One of the reasons I picked that book, not only because it's one of my favorite, right, but it's hard not to have favorite book of the Bible because they're all, they're all good. They're all good. But Philippians, I mean, you have joy. Time of year, it is dark, uh, it is cold, and we get stuck inside, and sometimes you can feel joyless. Well, I'll tell you what, the book of Philippians doesn't just tell us to joy, it tells us to rejoice. It's like you have joy, and then you bring it back again for an encore. This is what it's about. This book is amazing. And the reason that we have this joy you'll find in Philippians is it talks about new life, that we have a new life in Christ, and that life is a life of joy. It's an amazing thing. So what we're doing is every single week, we're going through another chapter. Each chapter, we're focusing on one new element, no aspect of this new life in Christ. And last week, we began, when we talked about that new life begins with a whole new message. It's not about us. It's about Jesus, right? That we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And as we follow him, he transforms us from the inside out so we become a blessing to the world. That's good news. That's amazing. That's the beginning of the new life. And then we'll find, we go on next week for us, we're going to talk about in the fourth week, we got a new partner that makes this all possible. But today, we go in and we find out that we have in this a new character, that this new life brings to us a whole different way of being. It's an amazing thing. So uh, as we go through that new character, uh, why we start, I think it's awesome that we talk about character. Character is a big part of life. Other than the Bible, I've got several books that I read every year because for me, that they've helped. Obviously, Scripture is, is you have to start there because you know, start with the best. But there are other ones that kind of help and for me. And so at the beginning of every year, I go through this book that was written a long time ago. That was, uh, it's called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I love that book because I'm, I'm not an organized person. You see my office sometimes like, What? But this book reminds me of how to make sure that I could take that beautiful, chaotic energy and focus it into doing awesome things. And it's a helpful book for me. And one of that, that reason it's called Seven Habits is it talks about something that's real in life, that our decisions form our habits. And our habits form our character. And our character deforms our destiny, how our life goes. If you really want to change your life, and Scripture actually even talks about it, it's a very scriptural principle. If you want to have an effective life, it talks about we, we need to have a better character. And that character comes from the choices that we make that define our habits. We find in this chapter in Philippians that God really talks about how he transforms a different kind of character that we are, we are called to have, the kind of character that is destiny-making. You want a destiny-making character? God's Word has that for us. Talk about it today. Now, before we get to it, though, is our memory verse, because this is the power to achieve that character. This is a different message than the rest of the world. The rest of the world is going to tell you, you get that kind of care, you get kind of destiny by getting lucky and by, by, you know, just by sheer will and just by making things happen. No, God's Word tells us this. I can do all of this through Him who gives me strength. That's the power of God's word. Remember, the good news, the message is this. It's not about you. It's about Jesus, that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And as we follow him, he changes us from the inside out. That's the character to become a blessing in the world. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So we talk about character first. Let's just remind ourselves of this piece of God's word. Say it along with me. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. I want to tell you this. This passage has the power to help you get back up so you can learn to walk. 
It's not your power. I can do all this through him. When you get out there and you fail and you will, it reminds you that you don't have to focus on you or what the next action and you can focus on Christ and be faithful and trust that he's going to be the one that's transforming you. So don't just say this and print it on your heart. Take that Bible memory verse card, put it somewhere you're going to see it, right? Somewhere you're going to find it because the enemy's going to be there and, and your doubt's going to be there and the disappointment's going to be there and you use this passage and it's your get out of jail free card with that one, right? You say, I'm not going to be stuck in my old way of life. I can do all this through him who gives me strength, right? That's how we use it. Okay, so let's get into the Bible. Philippians 2. Be on page 819 if you have one of our Bibles. If uh, you forgot your Bible today, don't worry about it. Or we've got plenty of them in the back right there by the sound booth. And so you're welcome to grab one of those. And if you need a new Bible, just keep it in our gift to you. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, we, uh, we recognize, remember chapter 1 was all about the new gospel, right? The new message. Once we accept that new message in this new life, we don't stay there, Right? Uh, sometimes people think that the church, the faith, is all about uh, coming to faith. Like, once I accept Jesus, I've crossed the finish line, I'm done. That's ridiculous thinking. That's, that's absolutely ridiculous. That'd be, that'd be like an Olympics to the Olympics. They get on the team, and then they're like, I'm done. I don't need to compete. I made it on the team. Now, you get on the team so you can do your stuff. You see, the, the Christian faith, when, when you become a Christian, that's when it begins, Right? That's the starting point. That's when the fun starts. You're on the team once you got the gospel. Right? You're saved by God's grace through faith. That's, that's powerful. You're on the team. But God didn't just call you so that way you could just be saved and sitting on the bench. He called you so you could be a star player, that you're going to be out in the world doing things. So that way as, he, as you follow him, he'll transform you. That's why chapter 2 is so important. Chapter 1 is the gospel. we got three more chapters of new life. Once we accept the gospel, it does a transformation within us. See, when we accept the gospel, it's, it's like this. When, when a person is, is born, right? Most of us, that's how we start, right? We're born, right? But we don't stay that way. It would be ridiculous if we did. You don't find parents of a newborn child, you know, they're like, oh, we have a baby, and they throw a big party, and that's it. And they're like, all right, we're done, right? That. That little baby needs to grow. That, 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 it began its life. It needs to have a family around to kind of teach it how to grow up so it learns how to human, right? And, right? That, that's the kind of, the, and that's the fun part, raising the kids, seeing them grow, right? And then when they leave the house, then you throw the party and they're still not done, right? When we come to faith in Jesus, it says we are born again. That's how Jesus said it. We were born again. It's the same process that helps. When when you come to faith, if you're five years old or you're 50 years old, when you come to faith in Jesus, you are born again. You are a spiritual infant. And the church loves you. The church is a family. But we were there to nurture and help you grow in faith. Right? We have to grow up. Do you know how ridiculous it would be if if you were 50 years old and still in diapers? Right? Still, you know, eating out of a bottle? Still asking your mommy if you could go outside? I mean, being an adult is great, isn't it? You can, you can choose when you want to go to bed, right? You can choose if you're going to eat those vegetables or not. You could buy any cereal you want. Being an adult's great, right? We, we have 
all kinds of agency and we have the impact of the world, right, as adults. We, we can do great things. Growing up is good. Growing up in faith is also good. You can be born as a Christian and stay an infant for a very long time. You can stay needy and whiny and cryy and need a lot of diaper changes. And you can stay there as long as you want to. Now, how do children grow? How do they learn how to, to become adults? They watch other adults. That's why God called parents to parent. That's why he didn't call like a support group of other toddlers to help raise your toddler. Right? They have adults, and so children look to those that are older than them, and they say, oh, that's what it's like to grow up. I can see in their life, children, parents, children are looking at you. Grandparents, your, your grandkids are looking at you. If you are in this church, you have young children that are looking at you. If you are an adult, say, this is how I live. This is why for children, stories are so powerful. And in stories, they read about people who have done things, and they look like, they, they say, this is how that's going to be like when I grow up. They have an idea. This is what it, like, what it means to mature. It's no different for spiritual believers. That's why we call discipleship. We are disciples of Jesus, right? He's pretty darn mature in the faith. We look to him. But we also look to other people who are following Jesus, who are more mature than us. And we look at how their life example is, what is and we begin to follow that. It's called discipleship. And as I follow Christ, I invite other people to follow me as I follow Christ. Right? And we have this beautiful train of maturity that, that we have. Generations grow up in faith this way. So we look to the example of others who have, who have gone before us, who have achieved maturity, and we say that is where we're going. Well, in this chapter, Paul shows us four examples, four stories of different people who have grown up in faith, who have demonstrated maturity of character. So we see where we are going. And that's what we see as for our new character. So the first one that we have, the first example to follow is of Jesus, right? And we read about this in starting in verse 1 to verse 11. And it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in mind, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking up the very nature of a servant, Being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above all and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A powerful passage. you say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus' example, right? We are, follow, we are disciples of Jesus. We want to grow more like in Christ. But Paul focuses on one particular character of Jesus that he sets up for us to follow. And that is the character of humility. We want to grow that character of humility. That's part of being mature in faith, is to become more humble. Now, when I say that, I say that word at the great risk of being misunderstood, because somehow in our culture, the idea of humility was associated with self-loathing. This is not true. To become humble doesn't mean that you have to hate yourself or you have to make yourself 
you know, devalue yourself. How do we know that? Because we're following the example of Jesus. Jesus is God the Son. He is God the Creator. He is God. Jesus didn't self-loathe. He didn't ever say, well, I'm just the worst Savior there ever was. Right? He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. He came to do powerful things. He never, ever put himself down. Humility is not about loathing yourself. That is a lie from the enemy. God loves you. He made you just the way you are. He cares about you deeply. Just like today, he cares about you. He's not asking you to hate yourself. That's not what humility is about. And I find that people who hate themselves oftentimes hate others too. Humility is different. Humility, if we follow Christ, is not putting myself down. It's actually lifting others up. Did you see that? He said, in your relationship with another, verse 5, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. What mindset is that? Mindset of humility. Is God did not consider equality God with something to be used to his advantage. He didn't lord his needs over other people and say, well, I'm too good to serve you. Instead, it said, rather, he made himself nothing being, uh, by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. He saw our needs and was able to lift us up. He says, okay, if I need to identify with that's what I'm going to do to be able to meet your needs. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. You've heard this said, right? But it's thinking of yourself less. It's seeing somebody else and stop focusing on me. Remember the gospel starts with, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. We've got to stop focusing. When I accepted the gospel, one of the things I accepted is no longer about me. Because fine, I am going to live forever. I've got spiritual health and a brand new body that's going to be even better than this one, if you can imagine. It's going to be awesome. Right? I've got heavenly wealth in eternity, and I've got God's provision for today. He's taking care of me. Right? I have his compassion. I got his grace and forgiveness in eternity, and today I also have his companionship and his fellowship. I am fine. He has given me also the church as a family. I, all of my deepest needs taken care of. I don't need to worry about me anymore. The things that occupy the minds of the unbeliever, those who are out there all the time trying to take care of these things, are taken care of, given to you in Christ. So when God says it's not about you, he's not just being mean and saying, well, just don't care. He says, I've got you. That's part of faith. And because I don't have to worry about these things, I now have the capacity now to focus on other people, to imitate Christ, that I can stop looking at me and my needs. My sight can go further than the end of my nose, and I can see you. And I can see where you are because God saw me where I was. And I can begin to care for your needs. That's humility. Begin to care for who you are and where you're at. Humility is so important. This is, a, this is a characteristic of God. It is not lowly to be humble. It is high and lifted up. This is something that we look to as Christians and realize that humility gives us the capacity to do something amazing, and that's this, that we can actually care for one another. That is a miracle. You see, the power of humility leads to, in this passage, something called unity. Did you see that? See, he says right there in the very first part, he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, right? We have this unity between us and Christ because of the gospel. Any compassion from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, we recognize it's not about me, it's about him, right? Then it says this, 
Then he says, any tenderness, compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being united in the same spirit and of one mind. That's called unity. Being of the same spirit, the same mind. And then he explains how that happens. It's the character of humility. A church that is not filled with humble people is going to be a church that is divided. Pride splits us apart, doesn't it? Pride is when it's about me. It's about my needs, and I force you to meet my needs. And if you're prideful too, then you're going to be at war with me because you're going to try to force me to meet your needs. And that's not my game, right? That's why marriages with two prideful people typically are miserable. Friendships that have two people that are selfish don't, aren't very good friendships. Have you ever seen two people that try to be friends, but they're very, very selfish and neither really cared about it? They're shallow. Have you ever had a friendship with somebody who's like a me monster? Like no matter what you said, it, they turn it around to make it about them? That's exhausting, isn't it? You're like, oh, I found this new restaurant and it was really good. And they're like, oh, that's nothing. I had this better food. You're like, okay, well, I started this new exercise program. Oh, that's nothing. It's about me now and I'm working out too, right? Those type of people are exhausting. And if you get two of them together, then it's, it's sparks fly. If they understand that we want to be united, we have to start with humility. A church has to recognize that we can care for one another even with all of our brokenness, all of our blemishes, right? I can care for you, and sometimes meeting your needs is giving you grace. Sometimes meeting your needs, right, and not worry about mine, is, is giving you forgiveness, Sometimes meeting your needs is seeing where you're at and being able to say, you know, I can serve you even if it's going to cost me. That's part of what we are called to as a church. That comes through humility. See, Paul, he points to Christ and he says this, follow him. Be more like him. How do we do that? Well, God's got to change you. He's got to make you into a humble person. But how does he do that? Well, he works with us. And in us, right, as we follow him. So with the decision to start treating others with humility, the decision to, to take the risk and say, you know what, I'm going to trust God that he really does have me taken care of so that I can enter into your pain. That step of faith empowers God to start working inside of you, to start changing you. And the more you follow Christ, the more you will naturally become a more humble person, a person that naturally just starts seeing others and stops focusing on themselves. Can you imagine what it would be like to be set free of narcissism? The self-worry about what everyone's going to think about me? When you start saying, what does God think about me? And that becomes your main thing. I'll tell you, I've been walking with Jesus for 20 years, and I've seen God do this transformation in my life. I'm not fully there yet, but I am way closer. And I'll tell you, it's amazing. The first one, we have humility, but there's three more to go. We have, the second one is Paul. Paul points to himself. Verse 12, we read 12 to 18. He says, therefore, my dear friends, have you always obeyed not only my presence, but also much more in my absence? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works within you to will and to act in order to fulfill his and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in this warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering... 
I am, um, uh, even if I am being poured out drink, drink offering on the, on the sacrifice and the service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul points to himself and he says, there's a character that he has. And he beckons us to follow and that's this, obedience. That's part of character. Have a character of obedience. And the power of obedience is found in this word which has been uh, misused by culture and inappropriately maligned. And the power of obedience comes from this. It's called submission. And I think that there's probably a very few words that are more hated than that. But I will tell you, it's silly to hate submission. Submission is powerful and it's good. Think about it. You use submission in your life and you count on it every single day. Every time you get in your car to drive somewhere, you submit to the laws of the road and you count on other people submitting to those laws, don't you? Can you know how ridiculous it would be if people are like, I don't want to submit, submission's bad, I'm going to drive wherever I want, right down the middle or whatever. That'd be crazy. I'm going to drive backwards, right? We submit to the laws and we count on the people doing that, otherwise our world goes into chaos. How about this? If you work for somebody, you submit to your employer, don't you? Well, they tell you what they want you to do, and you do it. Can you imagine if you went in, and you all your coworkers, and you're like, well, we're going to do whatever we want. Do you think you'd have a job long? Well, let's just say your employer wouldn't fire you. You go in there, and your employer's like, I don't believe in submission. Submission is bad. And you're like, well, what do we do? And you're like, well, do whatever you want. Do you think you'd have a job? That's ridiculous. How about if you're a business owner? You're a business owner. You have employees, people you're over, and, and the... And they're like, well, we don't want to submit. Submission's bad. You would pull your hair out. I guarantee that what they think is in their best interest ultimately would cause them losing their jobs. Right? Submission is not bad. Think about an army. We go to war. Can you imagine if the privates were just to tell the generals, nope, don't want to do that today. We're going to do whatever we want. I'd rather target practice or whatever. I don't want to run 10 miles. That's hard. Right? We would lose every war ever. For sports teams, to business, to our government, and it produces great things. Submission is not inherently evil. The question is, what are you submitting to? And that's what we have to look to. I'll tell you that, that Paul says you can submit to God. He's actually trustworthy. Which makes sense. See, Paul obeys God. And that's what he says in his life. He says this, uh, at verse 18, he says, therefore, uh, if, as you have obeyed, keep doing it. And then he points to his own life. It's a life of obedience. It's a life of obedience that led him to the prison that he now was in. And he's not bitter about that. In verse uh, chapter 1, we read that even though he's in prison for his faith, for nothing other than believing in Jesus is why he's being locked up. He says it's fine because the gospel is still being predicted. Pro- uh, proclaimed people know that i'm suffering for no other reason than for my faith and so there's even people in the very palace that are believing in jesus now he's like it's okay obedience sometimes requires sacrifice sometimes it takes us to places that we don't want to go but it always leads to the place that we need to be it always leads to blessing i challenge you if you can obey speeding laws and the government which is not always perfect if you can obey imperfect companies and bosses, then why would we have trouble obeying God Almighty who is perfect and loving and proved that He's in it for your best interest, showing it by through His humility? 
why do we have a hard time obeying him? Christians, we come through all these excuses as to why we don't want to obey God. Well, I'm not saved by it. Well, yeah, my son is not my son because he eats his Brussels sprouts, right? But eating those Brussels sprouts makes him a better person. It really does. I believe it in my soul. Right? There are things that God asks us to do. It's not just about salvation. Yeah, you were born. Now you're part of his family. It says in the word, he disciplines those he loves. Discipline's not punishment. Not at all. Punishment is saying, like, here's the standard. You're here. I'm going to make you suffer that much. Discipline is this. This is where you are. This is where you need to be. I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring you up to where you need to be. God loves you enough, and he says, I'll do whatever it takes to bring you up to where you need to be for your good. Discipline. That's obedience. Obedience is going along with that. The word of God tells us what God wants from us. That's why we put our lives into submission to it. That's why Paul says, if you do that, guess what? You're going to be like stars in this world. Your life's going to look totally different. Even a perverse and corrupt general God start to obey him, he will transform you so much that everybody else will look at you and say, there's something different about that person. Their character is inherently better. It's good. It brings beauty to the darkness. Obedience is the way there. If you want to follow Christ, it is a way of obedience. If you and your faith have never come to a place where you have disagreed with Scripture, then you're not reading it hard enough. Because you're not God and you don't know everything. And there are ways in your heart that your moral compass has been put askew. That's the, that's the fall. That's what it did to us. That's the fallen nature. If you've never come to a place in the Word of God where it rubbed you wrong, then you're not reading it right. You're only reading for what tickles your ears. And God has something more for you. If you begin to obey, it leads to something amazing. It's called testimony. That's the power of obedience. That's what Paul writes in here. That's what's shining like stars in amongst the perverse generation. That's what it means. If you obey, then you earn testimony. You earn the right to be heard. And then people will listen. I'm going to tell you the power of this in my own personal life of obedience and how it can be hard and it can be difficult at times with how it can set you free. When I got married, I was 21 years old, and that's when the internet was apparently invented, right? That was a while back. I had a 486 IBM as a, as a wedding gift, and I hooked it up to the internet through AOL, and I had a 14.4 modem. Like I was like screaming fast online, right? I got on there. And you know what was invented the same time the internet was invented? Online porn, same time, guarantee it. And I, it, I didn't look for it, it looked for me, and it got me, and it captured me. For about two years, I had this private sin in my life. And I knew it wasn't right, and, and, and I knew God's word wasn't good with it. it. said to keep my eyes pure, right? But I was trapped, and I tried to free myself from it on my own power. But see, I can't do all this because I don't have the strength, and I kept falling back into it. It drove me in. The enemy was there telling me, Aaron, God can't love you and all that kind of stuff. You've got to hide this from your wife, all of that. And I was being trapped in this little prison of self-hatred and loathing. But God's word told me a different way to live. And I knew that I needed to live it. So this is what I did. I went to my pastor and I said, I need some help. And Scott, he was a pastor, and he put some other men around me, got some good accountability. They called me up all the time, got my wife into this, which was risky, and she's amazing. 
And she said, you know what, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to walk through this with you. And she provided accountability with me as well. He walked me out of that prison. Now, I've been free from that prison for over 20 years. And I will tell you something amazing about that. Is God only freed me, but he's used my testimony to help dozens of men walk into freedom. Right? That's the power of testimony. They can see it can be done. That's what it can do. I had to start at a point of saying, I'm going to obey. It's going to be hard, and it's going to be humiliating. I had to go to my pastor and admit that I had this sin. I had to go to my wife and admit I had this sin. I had to repent. I had to open my life up to accountability. I had to obey, and it was not easy, and it was not quick, but it was powerful. And I have freedom now. And because of that freedom, other people have experienced freedom as well. You see, when you start to obey God, he will take your darkness and turn it to light. He will take your imprisonment and he will teach other people, turn to keys to help other people find freedom. God does that. It's called the redemptive work of Christ. And it comes through obedience. Obedience builds testimony. If you want to have testimony to your friends, to your family members, to the community, if you want to say, when we talk about Jesus, he can free him, he better be freeing in your life. And that starts when we start obeying. And remember, you do it not by your own strength or power. You do it through Christ. And we do that together. Okay, third one we have. Next example is Paul's associate, Timothy, who he got to, to lead. Grow up at verse 19. We'll start there. And he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you as soon as I find how things are going with me. And I am confident that in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Timothy sets an example for us of something called trustworthiness. Timothy was a young man. He, Paul's second missionary journey right before he went to Philippi. Uh, he went and planted a church, and guess who was there as a young man, probably 14, something like that, named Timothy. Timothy had a mom that was Jewish, a dad that was Gentile. They accepted the gospel, he was baptized, and, and off he goes with Paul to be discipled. And the world has been changed because of it. Timothy's an amazing man. Can you imagine just coming, you're baptized, you're like, I want to go on a missionary journey with the greatest missionary ever. He didn't know that yet. Paul hadn't written the scriptures yet, but, but he were, here he was. And he lived. And he learns what it means to be a man of God and what it means to plant. Well, just a couple of, of towns after Timothy accepts Christ, he's following Paul, they plant the church. So Timothy knew of this church. He knew it was like there. He, was, he had seen it before. And so he had, he had, he had uh, witnessed God's power in this community. Well, Timothy stuck with Paul. Paul oftentimes was getting in trouble. Because right? Paul would go to places that didn't want to hear about Jesus, and he loved them enough. He humbled himself. He says, I'm going to do my best to present this in a non-offensive way so that you can get it. And yet, sometimes people just want to be offended, and then they would do things that were offensive back, because that's what you do. So they started doing things like they would yell at Paul, throw him in prison, all that kind of stuff. And guess what? There was a splash effect. The people around Paul also got to suffer and got to run for the lives, and Timothy was one of those. Though it was a life of hardship and of ridicule, Timothy never abandoned Paul. He proved himself to be trustworthy. And that's why Paul, at the end of his life, looking back and saying, I want to send this letter, I want to make sure that this church is okay, he sends his very best. He says, there's no one like Timothy who's this trustworthy. I mean, the power of trustworthiness comes from this word called dependability. 
Dependability. If you want to gain trustworthiness, you have to be dependable. You just got to do what you say you're going to do. Jesus said that if you're going to be his follower, stop, you know, giving people oaths saying, I swear I'll do that. Jesus said, just make your yes, your yes, your no, your no. Be dependable. The more you keep your word, the more you're just there and being dependable, the more trustworthy you become. And you know what happens? The benefit of trustworthiness is you get trust. People will trust you if you are trustworthy. And guess what? If you're not trustworthy, guess what they're not going to do? Trust you. Now think about this. You want to be a person that people trust? Who, who in their darkest times, they know that they can depend upon you. That they're the one that you, you, they go to you and recognize that you're the type, that you're like a rock. I think that's, that's the type of character we look to. We want to have that. Timothy was a young man and he developed this. How did he do it? He was dependable. He was with Paul every step of the way, being faithful. We follow Christ. We do what he asks. We're there consistently. We don't flake out. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're a little bit of a flake. You're just, you're just real with yourself. That's kind of where you are. You really struggle with keeping commitments. You're not alone. You know that most people, most churches struggle with this. Most companies struggle with this. Right, we have a, 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 uh, just a huge number of people that like say, I have a hard time sticking with something. I want to do what's right, but I find that I just don't have the power to do it. So I start something, and then I fail, and after a while, you get so tired of failing, you just don't want to start anything. And your yes is more like a maybe, and your maybe is usually a no. It ain't going to happen. kind of character, the type of character that not only will other people trust you, but you can trust you, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. That's the power that changes you. It's just being dependent. It's, just, it's being there every day with Christ, following him. And you're going to fall down a lot, but you're going to get back up, and then you become more and more dependable. All of a sudden, you're going to find that he develops within you something called trustworthiness. You're going to be a trustworthy person. And you're going to look back, and you're going to say, wow, I don't know when it happened, but now people, I can trust me, and so can others. Why is this important? Our gospel depends upon it. Why would the world trust us with the message of eternal salvation based upon nothing more than faith if they can't trust us to be good employees? If they can't trust us to be good neighbors or good spouses or good parents or good children. Why on earth would the world trust us with the most important things if they can't trust us with the trivial things? You cannot become trustworthy on your own, but you can in Christ. You can do all of this through him who gives you strength. If he could do it through a young man named Timothy, he can work that kind of trustworthiness through you. And we will gain the trust of our community. The last example that we have is a man named Epaphroditus. Yes, I did practice that name, and I spell check still doesn't know it. Can you imagine being a kindergartner? You're like, thanks, Mom and Dad, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was the man who the, the church at Philippi entrusted the money, the gift that they brought to Paul in prison. He traveled all the way from Greece to Rome with a great risk, remember, because he had to carry bags of money, which is risky, and bring it all the way over there, and who Paul himself trusted this scripture with as he, from his Roman jail cell all the way back to Philippi. We read about him here in verse 25, and he says this, for he longs, uh, let's see, how about I start in the right chapter? There we go. But uh, I think it's necessary to send back your co-worker, to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for you with all of, uh, he longs for all of you in his distress because he heard that you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, 
and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord and greet him with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourself could not give me. Paphroditus, his example he leaves. Paphroditus had a hard mission and it wasn't going to be easy and it was hard. It was risky and scary, and the journey was tough and difficult, and he got really sick along the way, and there were a lot of chances for Epaphroditus to say, I quit. I am suffering for the Lord, and I'm not getting anything out of this. This is just too hard work. I'm a volunteer here, by the way, Epaphroditus is probably saying. It's difficult. To the point of almost death. That's a hard volunteer job. But he didn't give up. He saw it through. Yeah, that's an amazing thing. Commitment is a powerful thing. I think one of the reasons that so many people make New Year's resolutions and then stop halfway through the month of January is because of commitment. When the going gets tough, they go home. They're like, well, I would like to lose weight, but it's more fun to gain weight. So there's that, right? When it gets hard, commitment is so powerful. The, the character of commitment is, is crucial to success in just about everything in life, though, right? Anything worth having has been difficult. I think most people, we look to people who have sh- demonstrated commitment and we, we are amazed at them. We, we look at their lives and we say, wow, that is great. Look what they've done. And we, we, are just, we love the impact that they've had. But we rarely do we want to go in to say what, how hard was it to get there. I mean, you look at somebody, uh, we can even look at uh, secular people. I mean, look at like Steve Jobs, probably not the most greatest human being, committed to his cause. How many people idolize this guy? Because he built a company, but he had to sell stuff, he had to lose friends. I mean, he was committed to the success of what he was at. And there's books about him. People read all kinds of stuff. We looked at him like, wow, that's amazing. Or how about people who like climb long, or Long's Peak? That was a commitment for me. I did that once, never again. How about like, like you go to like, like Mount Everest and you see people say, I climbed Mount Everest. You're like, wow, that's amazing. They climbed a big dirt rock, basically. But we're like, whoa, why? Because it took a ton of commitment. And we're amazed at them. Do you want to have that sign, kind of, that character in you, you can have it. God builds it in you. Commitment is there. It's part of the new life that we have. You are called to be a committed person. But we're called to be committed so much more than an apple or a big rock. We're committed to the very kingdom of God. In fact, we're committed to even more than that. We're committed to the king of the universe and his work in us. That's what we're called to. Epaphroditus demonstrates that for us. You see, Epaphroditus saw a mission through, and you are called to see a mission through. Jesus gave us a mission. Take the gospel. Help save people from sin and brokenness. Do it. See it done. He's trusted us something amazing, the very souls of those that we love. And you know, commitment, there's a secret to it. It's something called sacrifice. If you're going to be committed, you have to have sacrifice. If there's no sacrifice, there's no commitment, right? At some point, even if your commitment was, I am going to eat every kind of potato chip there ever was. I'm going to sit on my couch and do it. There's going to come a point that that's going to take some sacrifice. You're going to be so sick of potato chips, and you're like, I'm going to have to do this. Right? If you're going to do anything of value, it's going to take sacrifice. 
Epaphroditus sacrificed time with his family, comfort, friends, safety, all those things. Sacrifice them so he could see the mission through. Your ministry in Christ is going to require sacrifice. There are going to be things in your life that are going to be uncomfortable, things that you're not going to want to give up, but you're going to have to to see it through. There's going to have to come a point. Which is more important? We follow the example, the new kind of character that gives us the capacity to be able to choose the greater mission, to choose commitment. Now, the power, of, like the, the reward of commitment is great. You see it in there. It's something called honor. It says here that you are to honor Epaphroditus and those like him. How many of us want to be honored? When you walk into a room, people are like, oh, wow, that's, that's a person of significance. When you talk, people are like, wow, that's, you have something to say. I'm going to listen. To be treated as though that you have a, this intrinsic value. Honor doesn't come cheap. Honor comes when you walk through the fire of that sacrifice. And what's going to carry us through that fire of sacrifice is the commitment that we're going to. Those who are committed receive great honor. And that's what Jesus said. In fact, in, uh, uh, he said to, in Revelation, he says that those who endure will receive a crown of glory. That's what it's about. Paul says, we don't run a race to lose. We're going to finish this race. We're going to take everything out that, that, does the, that takes us off the race. I'm going to sacrifice whatever I have to, so I'm going to finish this race. And because of that, I will receive a crown of glory. We are called to this, something so much greater than ourselves, an honor which is huge. We call God's children. Today, in God's word, we have seen four, four demonstrations of of uh, character, four examples to follow as children of Christ to look to. We see Christ himself, Jesus, giving us an example of humility, a humility that leads to unity. We find then we also have Paul himself giving us a demonstration of obedience, a type of of this kind of obedience that, that empowers our very testimony. We see from Timothy, we have an example that leads to trust. And finally, from Epaphroditus, we have commitment that leads to honor. This is the new life that you are called to as God works in you and through you. How do you apply that into your own life? Well, if you take out your connection card, I've got some next steps that you can take of faithfulness. And remember, following Jesus is always about just your next step. That's faithfulness, right? right? If you want to climb Long's Peak, you're going to take a lot of little steps in the right direction. If you keep on the path, you're going to make it there. If you start taking steps off path, who knows where you're going to end up? Here's some next steps that'll keep you on the path. Let's follow Christ. You're going to be walking anyway. Let's see what we're doing. First thing that maybe you do this week is you memorize Philippians 4.13. You need to remember it's not your power, right? That's what's going to give you the ability to keep at it and trust that God's at work in you. Second thing, maybe you read Philippians 2. I read it once, so read it again. You're going to get more out of it. Ask God to work through you. How about this? Maybe you need to pray for unity. Unity's hard. Unity's hard in relationships. It's hard in marriages, and it's hard in church. Right? Because people are intrinsically selfish. And so that's why Jesus, the only thing he directly prayed for us was to be unified. There's a reason for that. It's difficult. So what maybe you should do is pray for unity in your life and amongst the church, help you to care for other people. This is a powerful thing. How about this? Maybe you want to just trust and obey. Maybe you or where I was a couple decades ago, find yourself trapped in sin. You know that God doesn't want you to be in. Here's the thing. Trust and obey. You're going to trust God's word. Maybe that's your step. Say, God, you're right, and I'm wrong in this. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be able to walk out of this. Trust and obey him. He'll give you incredible testimony. And I want you to know that I'm not just putting that burden on you. I'm here to support you and help you with that. This is what this church family is here to do. Trust and obey. And remember that 
You can do all of this through him who gives you strength. So make your commitment. And then in this minute, uh, we're going to take our offerings. And if we take our offering, I ask you to take this connection card, minus the memory verse, obviously, and uh, put that in there along with your tithes, your gifts, and any fifth uh, Sunday gift as well. Put that in the basket that is passed. And uh, we'll see what, what God does as we follow him. All right, let's pray. Father God, it's cool that we can call you Father, actually. It's pretty amazing. And uh, you treat us like that. Uh, we are your children. And uh, even though when we're born, we're like newborns, and uh, you clean up a lot of our messes and we whine a lot, but you don't abandon us and you carry us through that. Thank you for the church that you've called to help also care for your family. But Father, I'm grateful that you called us not just to be part of your family as infants, but to grow up in faith. Help us as your church to do that. May we grow in faithful character. Father, develop these things in us as we follow Christ. We're grateful for that and that we are saved by your grace through our faith in him as our Lord and Savior. And Lord, that uh, as we follow him, you do transform us from the inside out so we can be a blessing to the world. I pray that blessing over this congregation, including myself. May your word come alive in us. May your character develop in us as we follow you faithfully. Part of that, Lord, is bringing our tithes and offerings, which you've asked us to do. Please take these as a gift, a sign of our obedience, but also our love for you, our commitment to your kingdom as an investment in the good work that you're doing, not just in us and through us, but also in this world. Would you please bless them and multiply them, meet all of the needs that, that, that we have in order to fulfill your mission in us. We ask all of this in our wonderful Savior's name. Amen.